Uh, so let me say good morning to you. For those of you who might not know it, uh, my name is Thomas. I'm one of the pastors here with Christ Redeemer Church. And uh, I get the privilege of preaching about once a month. And uh, so here we are again. And as of a couple, uh, a couple months ago, I began a sermon series moving us through the book of Ecclesiastes. Um, now I'm sure most of you have heard the phrase, it is what it is. Right? It is what it is. I'm sure most of you are familiar with that, or, or maybe, uh, hey, whatever will be, will be. K sera sera. It is what it is. And uh, what do people usually mean when they say that? Or when you, you, I'm sure you've actually used that phrase. What do, you, what do you mean when you say that? It is what it is. Well, usually, I think, people are essentially expressing, uh, now probably not knowing, knowingly, not consciously, but really they're expressing uh, a fatalistic outlook on life. Fatalistic. Hey, uh, this is the situation, and it can't be changed. And like it or not, for better or worse, there's really nothing that anybody can do about it. It is what it is. And I would say that that's fatalism, or that's the, the outlook of fatalism in a nutshell. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, he describes it this way. He says, quote, Fatalism teaches that you can do nothing about life. That there are powers and factors controlling you. Powers and factors holding you in the grip of a rigid determinism. Um, well, that's no fun. Uh, that, it is what it is. And, and that can feel very perplexing. That can feel um, annoying. Uh, it can feel very helpless, very powerless. And um, we're going to continue on in the book of Ecclesiastes today. We're going to be looking to things that are related uh, to chapter 1, verses 12 to 18. So actually, if you have your Bibles with you, you can go ahead and open up to Ecclesiastes chapter 1. Um, uh, if you don't happen to have a Bible, you can raise your hand, and I think Greg will get you one, if you happen to not have one with you. Um, but as I've mentioned before, a uh, major theme running through the book of Ecclesiastes is this idea of vanity or futility running through all of life. And I think that we find this, um, a particular expression of vanity in this section of, of the book. And uh, really the, exp- the particular expression of vanity that we see here in these verses that we're going to read is this one, this expression that gets expressed as basically fatalism. It is what it is. The writer concludes this big search for uh, uh, understanding life, and his conclusion is basically fatalism. It is what it is. And so today I want to just move through briefly these seven verses and uh, feel the writer in that regard, see uh, his writing in that regard, and then, and then I want us to consider, how, how do we, trusting in Jesus, deal with that conclusion? How do we react to it? How do we process it? How do we um, uh, engage with it? And so on. So let's pray, and then we'll read, and we'll, we'll move forward. So Lord, thank you for the opportunity for all of us to gather together here this morning. And I do pray that you would open our hearts wide to hear from you, uh, open our minds to understand what you want us to understand this morning. And uh, please help us, encourage us, strengthen us, stir us up to a life that is pleasing to you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verses 12 to 18. 
I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after the wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were before me in Jerusalem. Uh, and, and my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceive that this also is but a striving after the wind. For in much, vex, uh, is, in much wisdom is much vexation. And he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. Okay, so... Um, back in earlier in chapter 1, verse 2, the writer basically stated there his thesis, namely, vanity. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity, he said. And then he followed that up with a poem, basically illustrating that thesis, mostly in that case, I think, related to our work. And now in this section, the writer kind of steps, steps back. Uh, he, he pauses a, sec- a, a second, he steps back, uh, kind of reboots, and he basically states up front, this is my plan, this is my, the quest here that I'm, I'm about to um, undertake and take you through in this book. And then like with maybe an article or a book that's related to a research study, he gives a synopsis of the results of that study of his and what he is going to be unpacking in the rest of the book. Uh, as it goes. In verses 12 to 13, I think we see there that the writer is basically saying, hey, we are going to, I am going to toil, I am going to sweat, and I am going to figure out, I am going to understand this thing that's called life. He's going to pour his heart into it. Uh, He's going to do that by wisdom. And with that wisdom, he's going to investigate. He's going to test. He's going to observe. He's going to experiment and so on. All of this in a quest to really understand the world's ways. And not just part of life, but really he wants to know all of life uh, in, in uh, kind of taken as a whole. Philip Riken says, in short, he wanted to know everything about everything under the sun. And then he, he summarizes the results of that quest. And it basically confirms his initial thesis. So uh, verse 14 summarizes... I have seen everything that is done under the sun. And behold, all is vanity and a striving after the wind. All is vanity. And then he elaborates on that in verse 15, saying that life is pretty much crooked and lacking. It's crooked and it's lacking. In other words, it's confusing, uh, it's perplexing, and there is a lot that seems broken. But yet there's very little really that we can do about it. It's unexplainable and it's unchangeable. I think that's the force of verse 15. Excuse me, do I, we have to do something here? Okay. All right. Vanity. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Futility in, in action here. All right. Sorry. Thanks, brother. All right. Okay, here we go. Well, we'll try this. So, um, uh, things are unexplainable and, and things are unchangeable. That's really the force, I think, of verse 15 there. It is what it is. 
It is what it is. And life really does, I mean, if we, if we would admit it, life really does often seem very unexplainable, very unchangeable. One, one example pointed out to me, for instance, uh, think about a, a tornado that rips through a neighborhood. Isn't it crazy sometimes how that tornado will completely destroy one house and the house right next door is like completely untouched? I mean, that's just weird. How do you explain that? How, how, how do you make sense of that? Um, hard to understand. You know, and even if we could explain that, well, what would we even do about it? It's not like we can actually... Uh, stop the path of a tornado. Basically, all we can do is, is sit and wait and, and watch a, a house get destroyed. So even in that sense, even with increased knowledge, if we might be able to explain it even just a little bit, still, that knowledge, some wisdom in itself, um, really isn't all that great. And the, and the writer goes on to say, in verse 18, basically, increased wisdom and knowledge, it's just vexation. It's just, it's just sorrow. The more we know Oftentimes, the more we realize how helpless and how powerless, uh, how fatalistic things really seem. The more we know, oftentimes, the more we realize how broken, actually, the world is. And so even this quest for knowledge itself, by wisdom, is, quote, an unhappy business, as he says up in verse 13. And we experience that uh, for sure. I mean, any of us here who are who is an adult, who was once a child, we know this. I mean, man, the burden of knowing what we know now that we didn't know as a child, I mean, really, ignorance is bliss, as they say. Out of sight, out of mind. It's, it, can be a very, uh, it can be a very happy place. Um, but wow, in our modern day, especially with social media, we do gain a lot of knowledge about various things that are going on around the world. And uh, boy, we can see so many tragedies out there for so many people all over the world. And so now we're no longer ignorant. And uh, being uh, as bliss doesn't qu- come quite as naturally. It's no longer out of sight. And so it's no longer, longer out of mind. And that can be terribly vexing. Feeling so helpless to make really any lasting change. Um, we might learn terribly sad news. And we really can't do anything to change it. Okay? So all that's done under the sun... The writer is going to seek it out. He's going to search it all out. And he summarizes his results. It's crooked. We can't straighten it out. It's broken. And we can't fix it. And it doesn't make much sense. It's perplexing. It doesn't add up. We see that change is needed, but we can't change or we can't fix it. We don't even know what we don't know. We don't even know what's missing. And it basically just feels as it is what it is. It is what it is, and it's going to be what it's going to be. And that is deeply frustrating and confusing. It's all vanity. And it's a vanity, again, expressed essentially in these ideas of fatalism. It is what it is. Uh, it's going to be what it's going to be. Que sera, sera. Okay? So if, if that's the conclusion by someone as wise as this writer, uh, verse 16 says that he was one with great experience of wisdom and knowledge. So as, as wise as he was, if this fatalism is his conclusion, well, how do we engage that as, as followers? What do we make of that conclusion? How, do we, how should we process that? Um, I think those are good questions. 
And I'm going to just mention a couple things in response here, just in the rest of the message. So number one, how, how do we respond to that conclusion? Number one, understand the, the perspective from which the writer is making that claim. Understand the perspective from which the writer is making that claim. And then secondly, notice and act on or act in light of another perspective, namely God, one that accounts for God and his sovereign purposes. Okay, so first of all, understand the perspective from which this claim of futility is being made. Namely, it's from, quote, under the sun. Under the sun. We talked about that a little bit uh, a month ago in my last message. Understand that the writer is concluding what he does based on a particular perspective. And that's summed up in this phrase, under the sun. And the, the nature of that perspective is this. It is a way of looking at the world, essentially, that does not account for God. It's a view of ourselves. It's a view of our world and all of its various systems, not mindful of God or his priorities or his plans. It's a, it's a perspective, actually, that is not strictly atheistic, uh, as we kind of get the feel of throughout the book of Ecclesiastes. It's a view that does acknowledge that God exists, but yet it doesn't account for God in making various decisions or in trying to understand various situations. It doesn't account for eternity or God's judgment or his uh, character or his designs or his plans and so on. That, that's life lived um, with a view, quote, under the sun. And from that perspective, well, yeah, uh, everything pretty much just is what it is. Everything is what it is, and it's going to be what it's going to be, for better or for worse, as perplexing as it is, and there's really very little, if anything, we can really do about it. Okay? So first of all, just understand that perspective from which the writer is making the claim of futility or fatalism. Secondly, then, if that's one perspective, well, consider a different perspective and and act in light of that different perspective. Namely, do account for God. Consider God and his sovereign purposes and see that in contrast to life observed under the sun, life basically, which would say life basically is fatalistic, well, in fact, it's not fatalistic. In fact, God is present, God is sovereign, and he's good, and he's working out very good purposes. So life is not, in fact, fatalistic. Things don't just happen by chance, nor are they dictated by some sort of blind, impersonal, um, purposeless kind of fate. Very much to the contrary, life is upheld by the power uh, of a good and a sovereign God with very good purposes. Yes, very good purposes, even with regard to those crooked, vexing, lacking and sorrowful experiences that we see regularly, that we regularly feel. You notice verse 15 again. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. Now that in itself, I mean, my goodness, that does feel very fatalistic. We can't fix what's broken in our lives or in the world. Uh, There's some things that we simply cannot change But is that the product of chance? 
is that, is that the, the, the result of, of just some fatalistic forces? Uh, well, look over at chapter 7 with me, please. Chapter 7, verse 13. Chapter 7, verse 13. There it says, I hear pages still turning. So there we are. Uh, chapter 7, verse 13. There it says, Consider the work of God. And see if this sounds familiar. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? Okay? So there in, in chapter 7, the writer steps out from the confines of this under-the-sun view, and he sees a much bigger picture of reality. And he sees not, not purposeless chance or, or impersonal fate behind life's ups and downs. No, he sees God. He sees a sovereign God over life's ups and downs. Um, and he continues on there then in verse 14. He says, In the days of prosperity, be joyful. In the day of adversity, consider. God has made the one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. So here, here's an alternative perspective to the usual vantage point of, quote, under the sun. The writer there in, in chapter 7, he is seeing the world in a way that, that, that very much accounts for God, especially God's sovereignty. And so in light of that then, uh, consider, there will certainly be aspects of life that are perplexing. Not all mysteries are going to be dispersed. But, why is that? Well, it's not because it is what it is, in a fatalistic sense. It's not because that's, that's just life from some hand of some impersonal force or happenstance. But it's because of purposeful decisions by a very powerful, a very wise, very personal God. And in that wisdom, why on earth would God ever decide to make anything crooked? Well, uh, Romans 8, I think, helps us with an answer for that. So please turn with me to Romans 8. Romans chapter 8, verse 20. Romans chapter 8, verse 20. There it says that the creation was subjected to futility. It's the same word, uh, working through some Greek and Hebrew, that's the same word you get all throughout Ecclesiastes about vanity, futility. The creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. In other words, uh, as in Ecclesiastes 7, Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? And why did God do that? Why did God make things crooked or, or futile? Well, Romans 8 continues, and he says that he did that in hope. Right at the end of verse 20. In hope of what? Verse 21. So that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. You can jump down to verse 23, verse 23, and not only the creation, but we ourselves. We have the first fruits of the Spirit. We groan inwardly, inwardly as we wait eagerly for 
adoption as sons. The redemption of our bodies. For in this hope, we are saved. So Romans 8, I think, would affirm that the the crookedness, the, the vexation, the sorrow, the seeming fatalism, the futility that we so often face in life is not owing to some fatalistic force or some impersonal strange chance, but it owes to God himself. And But notice, he he didn't do that just arbitrarily and in just some mean-spirited way. No, he did that in response to humans' sin, the first humans' sin in particular. So so, so way back in Genesis chapter 3, we see this utterly tragic point in time when the first humans sinned for the first time in human history. And ever since then, the world simply has not worked and been the way that it is supposed to be. Ever, ever, since then, ever since then, things to varying degrees are just simply broken. And I think we probably all just know that and feel that intuitively. Things are broken in nature. Things are broken in human relationships. And, and most significantly, things are broken between God and humanity. Uh, that's the most significant relationship that has been broken. And so my take on it is, is this. I would say that God subjected the world to futility. Why did he do that? So that we would always be reminded of the seriousness, of the brokenness of that relationship between God and humanity. And so that we wouldn't just kind of settle it and say, hey, I'm okay you're okay, everything is okay, and let's just carry on and make the best of things as, as, we, as we get them in life. Everything's fine. No, I, I think the futility that's all around us is meant to remind us that things really are, in fact, contrary to particular philosophies or uh, political campaigns, life really is not okay. Things are, in fact, broken. Um, God, I think, means to pop our bubbles, so to speak, and, 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 and we're to see that things really aren't the way they're supposed to be. And then that should point us to the fact that for the cause of that, which is this rupture in the relationship between God and people. And that's absolutely deadly serious. It's deadly serious. And so then being reminded of that literally every day, you stub your toe, you get in a car accident, you fall, you, you lose your microphone. This is futility, and it should remind us, oh yeah, this isn't the way life is supposed to be. Um, things are broken. There was a rupture between God and humanity. And, and I think knowing then that, re- being reminded of that literally every day, we would, we would, God would intend that we, we groan and we search for a solution. We, we realize things are wrong and need to be fixed, so we go looking for it. We, we realize that things aren't the way they're supposed to be, and so we don't just settle in, and we don't just kind of deal with the mess as it comes and just kind of make the best of it, but we go searching for something better, namely a Savior who would actually rescue us from this mess. And then in so searching, we would ultimately find, oh, that there actually is only one Savior, namely 
Jesus. So uh, we, we get kind of rousted off of our, uh, our seats because of the craziness all around us, and we go searching. We go looking. And he intends that we would find Jesus. So God crookeded the world. Okay, I'm coining a term here this morning. He crookeded the world in response to human sin. The first human sin crookeded the relationship between God and humanity. And then so God crookeded everything else in response. And God now superintends that crookedness to point us to what can only be found in Jesus. And what can only be found in Jesus? Well, namely, as Romans 8 uh, says there, adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. In other words, a final resurrection of our bodies. And and in fact, a, a resurrection of the entire creation. Resurrection to a life and a world in perfect harmony with all of God's ultimate designs, the way it was supposed to be, and in fact, even better. No crookedness, no lacking, no vexation, no sorrow, no futility, period. Literally, none of it. None of it. So there is rhyme and reason to the world. It's not a matter of of chance or, or fatalistic forces, even though... Or even the, uh, the, the crooked and the, the vexing and the sorrowful parts of it. Under the sun, it might feel very much the result of chance or fate. But, in fact, God, our very good, very purposeful, very sovereign God, is, in fact, at work toward really good purposes. So Ephesians 1.11, for example, says that God works all things according to the counsel of his will. Uh, Romans 8.28 and following. We're told that for those who love God and are called according to his purpose, all things work together for good. And the good that's defined there in that context is essentially being conformed. It, the good means being conformed to the image of Jesus. So God is at work, not chance. We're not, we're not, we don't need to concede to fatalism. It's not fatalistic forces or fate, but our good and our sovereign and purposeful God himself. And then knowing that, so being aware of that, what's the result for us? Well, frankly, it's not all exuberant, lighthearted, smiley, kind of bouncing off the walls full of excitement. Because, I mean, there are going to be moments of that, but even though we know that God is, in fact, in control, well, we still do experience crookedness and vexation and sorrow. Not all mystery is dispersed. We still do get perplexed, and we feel powerless to to change. Things still feel very broken to a very real extent. But even not having all of the answers, we do get some. And we get some pretty important ones. Some pretty important ones. Especially, we know from Romans 8 again, that that for God's people, all things work together to conform us to the image of Jesus. Everything, literally, works together. For us, it serves us in God's hand to conform us to the image of Jesus. Now, uh, or, or, or we know from 2 Corinthians 4, verse 17, for example. 2 Corinthians 4, 17. 
that any affliction now could in fact be considered to be light and momentary. And it actually could be known to be working to serve us in in what it says there is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Not all mystery is removed, but still there is, so there's still room for perplexity. But again, we do know some things. We know again, for example, 1 Peter 1, verse 6, 1 Peter 1, 6 and following, that while we might face various trials, those trials test and they strengthen the genuineness of our faith. They actually are used in God's hand to serve us. And, and, and through that experience, then, we are, we are prepared to, to experience praise and glory and honor with Jesus and with his people forever. It's not that there's no mystery there, but those are the facts. And those are some answers, and not all the answers, but they are some answers and they are ultimate answers. And so there's still crookedness, there's vexation, there's sorrow. Of course, we will face these things in life, but there's also hope. There's also hope. Hope, especially for change. Fatalism would say, it is what it is, and there's nothing we can do about it. No, no, there's hope. There's actual hope for actual change. It is what it is, sure, but it actually can and will change. It is what it is, but unlike under the sun fatalistic kind of thinking, because God is in fact sovereign, then it is what it is, but it will not always be what it is. It won't always be the way it is. Change is possible. In fact, change is inevitable. It's inevitable. Um, In Matthew 13, verses 41 and following, Matthew 13, verses 41 and following, Jesus said there, he said he is going to send his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and lawbreakers. And then, then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. All causes of sin are going to be uprooted. That is some massive change. Change sure can happen. Change sure will happen. It doesn't get much bigger change than that. All sin removed? Imagine the world if all sin was removed. Uh, ISIS? Gone. Racism? Gone. Any manner of uh, injustice that you can possibly think of? Gone. And that day is, in fact, coming if we believe Jesus' promise for it. Or think more personally. Think more personally. Think of your own sin. So there's change on the big scale. Jesus is going to come and he's going to uproot all this. But more personally, think of the countless problems in which your sin entangles you. And as I've thought through this, my sin entangling me. Um, Can you change? Yes. Can you change? By the power of the Holy Spirit, by the work of Jesus, yes, you can change. Uh, Easily? No. Overnight? Probably not. But can you change? Absolutely. Absolutely. This is one of the greatest promises of the gospel, is that we actually can change. 
First uh, Corinthians six gives us, I think, a really hopeful example. If you look over there with me, please. First uh, Corinthians six. First Corinthians six verses nine and following, nine to eleven to be precise. These verses are so important and so hopeful, I think. Hopeful because they, they point to possible change. So verse 9 says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. Let me pause there. Let me repeat that. Such were some of you. So in the Corinthian church, there were these folks who were past tense. They, they used to be sexually immoral. They used to be given to drunkenness. They used to be greedy. Or especially in, I think especially relevant in our day and age today, and in light of the recent Supreme Court decision, um, in light of the gay pride festival and parade that is literally happening as we are gathered here now, in light of that, some in the Corinthian church used to be people who practice homosexuality. They, they were, or, or such were some of the Corinthians. Past tense, practicing homosexuals. Uh, men in particular in this context, but women are addressed in other contexts. And then also, it's not the only thing mentioned there, again, past tense, greedy, sexually immoral, drunks, and so on. But what happened? What happened? They changed. They actually changed. Now, I don't think that the point here is that the people never again had a greedy thought or, you know, never again had some desire that, that would match a sexually immoral behavior. I, I, don't, I don't think that's what's happening. I think over time, uh, by, by God's sovereign hand, uh, their, 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 their desires changed over time. But their behavior certainly changed. Those desires, again, probably decreased over time, but certainly their behavior did change. How? Verse 11 gives us the answer. Verse 11, and how, and such were some of you. And to be frank, right, us too. Let's, he's talking to the Corinthians. We'll put ourselves right in there. We're in that list somewhere. So such were some of you, but something happened. You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of our God. So God changes things. God has sovereign power to change circumstances. God has sovereign power to change people, especially his own people. And for his people, he, he justifies them in Jesus, meaning that he, he declares us righteous, those of us who are trusting in Jesus alone for the forgiveness of our sins. And he washes us. Meaning that he, he cleanses us spiritually from, from the guilt and the power and the effects of our sin. And he sanctifies us. 
meaning, that he, he sets us apart for himself and, and for a life that is pleasing to him, a life that's going to inevitably conform more and more over time to the image of Jesus. And he empowers us by the Holy Spirit for that flourishing life. That is life as it was meant to be. And so when we face really the inevitable crookedness and the lack and the vexation and the sorrow of life, what will we conclude? Will we conclude as the writer of Ecclesiastes concludes? Is there, or is there an alternative to that rather fatalistic sense of vanity that we see uh, uh, in force in those verses in, in, in Ecclesiastes? Well, yes, there is an alternative way. There, there is this vain perspective of under the sun, but there is a, another perspective, namely one that does account for God and especially for his sovereign purposes. Now, again, that doesn't just magically evaporate all perplexing questions in life or, or in every respect remove all sense of helplessness or powerlessness, um, but it does infuse a significant measure of purpose and hope. Or at least it is meant to. As the Bible gives this truth to us, God intends that that truth would hit us and infuse into our perplexing and powerless situation a significant measure of hope. That's its design. It is what it is, sure. But it will not always be what it is. That is a promise from God himself. So when you see the brokenness around, when you feel it in your own life, when, when you feel that things really are not the way they're supposed to be, you know that there's got to be more to life than this vain sense of, 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 of futility. Um, you know that the world needs fixing. You know you need fixing. Uh, what? To, who, to what and to whom will you turn to see that set right? That's a question we all have to face. To what or to whom will you turn to see everything set right? So consider your reviling, as we saw in those 1 Corinthians verses, abusive, abusive patterns in your life. How, how are you going to change? Your greediness. How, will you, how are you going to set that straight? Your porn use or your drunkenness or your homosexual practices. How, how is the vexation and the, the sorrow there, the crookedness there, how is it going to be set straight? Your adultery. How is that going to be set straight? Are you going to see things in this fatalistic sense that, hey, you know what? It just is what it is. I, this is the way I, I am, and I just got to make the best of it. Or do you realize that things can actually change? Things can change. Answers can be learned. Not, not all the answers to every question under the sun. Um, not all mysteries are going to be dispersed, all, excuse me, all here and now. But some of the answers will. And uh, so... So we, we, we get some answers. We get power to progressively yet inevitably change. We get ultimate wholeness. And all of these are, in fact, possible with, through, because of Jesus, our one and only Savior and Rescuer. So it is what it is. That's true from a certain perspective. But from another perspective, 
what it is, is not always the way it's going to be. Because what it is, is by the hand of our very good and our very sovereign and very personal God. And that's, that's full of mysterious purpose, for sure, to some extent. But yet by faith, we believe that it is ultimately for very wise and very good purposes. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for uh, the chance to consider your word together this morning. And I would just pray that it, that, that it would sink deep and that uh, when all is said and done, that we would walk away from one another and into other circles, uh, back together with one another, uh, with friends, with family, with others. And we would not experience the futility of life, the crookedness of life, as if it is what it is. And there's really nothing I can do to change it. Might as well settle in and, and figure out how to deal with it the best I can. No. Lord, help us to have faith. Help us to hope in you. Help us to know that things come at us not by fate, but by the, the hand of a good God, the hand of a personal God, a, man who, a God who loves us in Jesus, a God who empowers us with the Holy Spirit to live a life that's pleasing to him. Help us. God, we need you. I plead with you. Please help us uh, to, to grasp the, the, the good news of your sovereign good purposes in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.